This week, I'm chatting with Rashida Holmes, the chef owner of Bridgetown Roti. Rashida has worked at some legit spots in LA, including the Freehand Hotel, Rustic Canyon, and Botanica. But she shifted to showcase food from her Bayesian background, including patties and rotis, two iconic Caribbean dishes I fell in love with during my time in Barbados. She and I chatted about everything from the flavors of the island to the innovative business model she's planning for her upcoming brick and mortar. Hello, scoop alert. And we have a candid conversation about both of our experiences coming out in the queer community. I really love chatting with her over pina coladas. Hey, look, it's smoothie adjacent. And besides, it's Friday, okay? Don't judge. I know that you guys are going to enjoy this one just as much as I did. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know that you've got a pop-up coming up this weekend. You're going to be doing a patty pickup, yeah? Yeah, I'm going to do patties again this week, probably for my house just because of the way the scheduling of the commissary kitchen is. And then the following week, I'll be doing patties and rotis like the week of the 24th or 5th that week. I'm excited to bring the rotis back because I haven't really been able to do it since quarantine. So I'm excited to bring that one back. And I've got a lot of requests now. They're like, it's called Bridgetown Roti. Where are the rotis? I'm like, fair point, fair point. I am most excited about those because that was my obsession when I got to visit Barbados a couple of years ago. They were so good. And I'd had patties before, but I had never had roti in the Caribbean style. And every time we could stop, I was stopping for roti. And I thought it was so interesting because it's this truly like Indian Caribbean hodgepodge. So good. And I just couldn't get enough of them. But I haven't really been able to find a good one here in LA. It's one of the reasons why I started what I started. You know, in New York and DC, you can get roti. You can get them all over the place, but you can't really get them out here in the West Coast. Why is that, you think? Uh, I think it's a combination of factors. I mean, I think it's the the immigrant population from like Barbados and Trinidad is pretty small in LA. There's a lot more Jamaican immigrants, but in general, Caribbean immigrants don't really come to California. They tend to gravitate towards Toronto, New York, DC, Miami, Atlanta, even Texas has a little bit of a New Orleans, you know, it's closer. Those islands are on the east side of the Caribbean, so they stay east, you know, they just right. don't- West. It's, you know, probably just cheaper flights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Proximity. And like Proximity once you get there, needed, you know, yeah. economics will do it to you. So, and it is, I feel like, especially Florida, climate wise, it's pretty similar. And if there's already a community yeah. established there, you've got, you know, built in infrastructure, exactly. you know, exactly. so especially it makes sense. Toronto, which has like huge Caribbean population and huge history of Caribbean immigration there. Toronto you know, does? Toronto has the largest Caribbean population outside of the Caribbean. Whoa. Yeah. I had no idea. I don't know why I assumed it would be like somewhere in Florida or even New York. Yeah, no, they have the biggest carnival in North America. Oh, man, dude, that is a bucket list item. I really want to go to a crop over. Yeah. I've heard it is a party. Yeah, I was I was planning. I had two trips planned that I was going to write off for research and development. One was to Barbados with my family in March. That was like a week before everything shut shut down. You were like, cancel, cancel, cancel. I know. And the ah. other one Tor- was to Toronto this summer and Canada's like, you're not coming in here. So. No. Oh my God. It's just the most frustrating thing, right? Cause it's like, well, you wanted your wall. You got your fucking wall, man. Like we cannot leave this shit. It's so frustrating. Oh yeah. I was just thinking about this the other night. I was like, God, it's so bizarre that like people have associated these masks with Liberty. And I'm like, you want to talk about Liberty? Let's talk about the fact that your bullshit decisions are taking away my Liberty to travel and my freedom. Yeah. As an American, like that's the real, real talk right there. I'm 
I'm pissed. Um, <laughs> it's hotter than Hades today, is it not? Like it feels like it is, they're it in is. my house I right now. I'm not pouring sweat during this call. Oh my god! If, it, if the audio starts getting disturbing, I did the same thing. I'm like, I turned my fan off, and I'm just like, it's like a Beakram studio in here. Um, <laughs> it's crazy, but I'm, you know, I, I do hope that sooner rather than later you'll be able to go and you know revisit. It's it sounds like you said ten years so. since you've been back. So. Yeah, I think the last time I was back was 22. Mm. Thank you, wife. Oh, wifey. <laughs> I need one of those. My dog doesn't exactly deliver sweat towels to me. <laughs> Bento, why haven't I trained you properly? Oh my God. But anyhow, I do hope that you get to go back and do that R&D trip. Are you in the midst of planning a brick and mortar that you'd be wanting to do that for? Or? I am actually. I just started working with New School Consulting. They kind of like in the wake of the protests kind of offered their services pro bono to any black owned businesses or concepts. So I'm working with them for a full year, mostly pro bono, almost like 90%. So that's awesome. It's really cool. They're taking on about eight to nine clients altogether. A couple of them are based in New York. I think I might be the only one of one of two LA clients that they took on. They just had a lot more inquiries in New York than they did here. So yeah, I mean, and I I know one of the owners, Paul Pruitt, I, I've known for a couple of years. So, you know, when I saw that, I was like, oh, Hey, Paul. He was like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> like, thank you very much. It's about time. Yeah. That's yeah, great. It's been like a lot of things like that in the past month that have really changed and reshaped and helped me grow in ways I didn't think was possible in such yeah. a short period of time. You know, I've been doing this for a year, but it feels like I just started again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to be honest. I hadn't heard of you and what you're doing until Steph from Time Out, she posted something and I was like, oh my God. Yeah. This is dope. And why isn't there more of this? It is sort of shocking when you think about it too, especially like we're talking about the Caribbean community in Los Angeles, not necessarily being as large as on the East Coast. And I know kind of where I am in mid city, there's a little bit on Pico and like North Inglewood and everything. There like, is, yeah, there is. Lamert Park has like certainly has a significant population. That's where you find like a lot of the Jamaican restaurants in that area are going to be like in Lamert Park, West Adams, that Pico. There is a little bit of like a pocket of Caribbean people there for sure. The Underground Museum, are you familiar with the Underground Museum? Yeah, they're amazing. Actually, one of my friends is her brother is one of the founders of the museum. Oh, they do nice. such cool events. Obviously, all the curation is incredible too. Yeah, so I did their, I, I did a pop-up at their Christmas block party this past December. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, at that event, I mean, we sold out really, really fast. And I think I had the most people come up and be like, <gasps> Roti's? Like Bayesian rotis? Like Trinidadian rotis? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're like, wait. So you know, <laughs> that, that place is like in the heart of that kind of area where you have a lot of like Caribbean people living. And I didn't even know until I did that event that that was kind of a hotbed of Caribbean immigrants in LA. I actually want to take a quick step back because I didn't follow up to what you were talking about with New School. So are they going to be partnering you with potential investors or helping you find spaces? Like how are they helping consult on what you're doing? Investments kind of, I think it will come from their participation in what I'm doing. Certainly they're helping me look at spaces. They're going to help me connect with architects and uh, negotiate, you know, leases that will work for the kind of budget that I'm working on, as well as like to help the project move along. They're going to help with, if we do a beer and wine program, they're going to help with that kind of development as well. Uh, interior design, exterior design. So yeah, they're, they're taking a pretty hands-on approach, which awesome. is 
which is pretty exciting. Awesome. And I mean, I imagine that that's essential as we kind of talk about, you know, black owned businesses and seeing, you know, more faces like yourself owning and operating restaurants. Do you think that's something that's kind of essential as we, we move forward here with the, you know, BLM movement and everything? I think it is essential. I mean, I think that, you know, people are really taking a reckoning on how we approach all sorts of businesses and, you know, in restaurants, especially there's, there's a ceiling that exists for people of color where we're running your dishwasher, we're running the line, we're even your sous chefs, but then there's like this stopping point where you're not seeing us in those executive chef positions and you're not seeing us in ownership positions. And the question is why, you know, why is that the case? I think it's twofold. I think it's our cuisines are not as honored in the restaurant industry and that contributes to people, you know, cooking food, the food that they don't want to cook necessarily, or the, just the food that's not of their culture and it not being really recognized as well as the systematic racism of America. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, Let's unpack a couple, 400 years. I mean, yeah. <laughs> where we don't really mentor or reach out to mentor those young Latino cooks and young black cooks to rise up to those positions and like give them opportunities to put them in front of investors and say like, here's a guy who you should look out for. Here's a woman who I think is going to be really great in a couple of years. Whereas you, I see that all the time with, you know, with, with my white counterparts. So I would say that I've always, I've always felt seen in the restaurant community and I've always felt like my work has been recognized. And I feel like I've built a reputation in LA a little bit as, as a chef. But at the same time, I still haven't like had an executive chef job. Like no one's like knocking down my door. And when I actually started applying, when I had like done some sous chef jobs and CDs jobs and I was like, okay, I'm going to start applying for executive chef jobs. I just wasn't getting callbacks from like anywhere. Mm. And I was really surprised by that because of what was on my resume. But I think things were starting to change um, before the current iteration of BLM. Yes. Um, and just an interest, as you were saying, like, I think people as, as uh, you know, the sort of elder millennial generation that I'm mm-hmm. a part of, and mm-hmm. I imagine you might be a part of as well. We're I'm really like well right in the middle of it. Right there, I'm like eight, 1984, right. you know, 35 years old. I'm right at that cutoff. But, uh, you know, yeah. I think that a lot of, you know, my, myself, my friends, people of our generation, like we're well-traveled. We really are, you know, live in multicultural areas. And I was so excited when I saw what you were doing. And I'm like, well, why don't we have something that's like an all to Adams, but for Caribbean food? Like why could yeah. that exist? Especially yeah. in that really cool neighborhood of West Adams where I am. Like, why the hell not? Like I would. <laughs> the light bulb. So do you think that there is an audience for it, right? Like, I mean, as you were yeah, seeing at the so. Underground Museum, like people are interested and engaged. And I yeah. do think it's really great that there are businesses like New School who are accelerating and pushing it forward faster because it does behoove them. Honestly, they're not, it's charity, but it's not, you know, we're throwing away the money and throwing it down into a pit and we know we're never going to get back. Like, I think it's going to be right. good for everybody. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, for them, it's like, they may not charge me now, but they're going to get a return from it. They're going to get the return that they know. And they understand that. And I don't, I don't think they see it as charity so much as they see it as they have a platform and they have the excess, like they had a good year. They had a great year, a couple years, you know? And so they want to be able to use that to give other people elevation that just haven't had the opportunity to be elevated. 
Totally. Um, and I, take advantage. Yeah, come on, girl, get it. Hello, it's about damn time. That's all I'm saying. We all have, you know what I mean? Let's like, you know, my mom always said that luck is the crossroads where opportunity and preparation meet. I'm like dancing on that crossroads, like nobody's business right now. And I'm mm-hmm. happy to do it. So we talked a little bit when you started to go into this. I know there's so much regional diversity in the Caribbean. What is the difference between Bayesian food, food from Barbados? I know that's always kind of confused me. I think Bayesian looks like Baja in. Yeah, yeah. um, yeah. It's called Bayesian food, guys. From Barbadian food is called Bayesian food. Um, What is the difference between Bayesian food and the rest of the Caribbean? There's a couple of things. I mean, the influence of South Indian immigration, particularly from like in the late uh, 1800s, when slavery was abolished throughout the British colonies, they were like, okay, we still need labor though. So let's just ship in our other (laughs) subjects from our other Commonwealth. Mm. And they did that for a number of years, all the way through, I would say like the 1920s or 30s. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's correct. And that had a huge influence on the cuisines of Barbados, Trinidad, St. Martin, Grenada, even uh, the Virgin Islands as well. And you find influences of bringing the the spice mixes of the curry and bringing the roti bread and people in the Caribbean like, okay, let's just throw in the ingredients that we have here. You know, our pineapples, our guavas, our mangoes, which is very similar to kind of the produce you would find in South Indian anyway. So it was kind of like a beautiful marriage of those two cultures the African cultures and those South Indian cultures and the indigenous cultures kind of like bringing together this cuisine. Jamaica and Cuba had, they just found different ways to blend those things together. And so you have like different nuances where you get like jerk chicken and things like that. And in Jamaica and Cuba has more Spanish colonial influences. The Caribbean is a port. It's like a giant seaport where all these people came in and out and in and out and ingredients came in and out and in and out. Mm-hmm. And it just developed this very melting pot cuisine that I really, really love that I can is spicy and and salty and full of seafood and all the things that I love to eat. And I grew up eating. Mm. It's so full of life. I think that, you know, those spices and then the hot, the scotch bonnet peppers that are in, yes. you know, the pepper sauce. Oh my gosh. It's, it's so vibrant. Just mm-hmm. like the people and the culture and the way of life. It's such beautiful food. And I'm so glad we're getting some of it here in LA. Um, <laughs> you talked a little bit about the roti and the Indian influence there. What are some of the dishes in Bayesian cooking that are more, I would say, like traditionally that were brought over from Africa? Well, you get, you know, because you have the sugar plantains and the and the banana production, you get like plantains. Like plantains is really a West African ingredient that was kind of brought over to the Caribbean a little bit because you find a lot of plantains in like Nigerian cooking and Ghanaian cooking things like uh, fufu which is like smashed up plantains into kind of like corn cake and then you fry them and you like eat it with bread with aki and eggs and things like that those are like the ways in which the African influence really shows itself up is like those very specific ingredients pigeon peas and rice like pigeon peas and rice any peas and rice comes from the africans who came over you know if you look at something like hoppin john in south carolina like that's an african dish of peas and rice they just use the beans they had there so like pigeon peas and rice 
is that same African dish. We just use pigeon peas in Caribbean because that's what they had. Mm. So, and you know, it's it's the Jaffa rice that has been influenced by the ingredients that were on the ground when people were brought over to the Americas. So the the reason why crop over is a thing, right? In in Barbados, Barbados, by the way, has like one of the best crop over festivals or parties mm-hmm. that, that Barbados yeah. and Trinidad. So the yeah. whole story behind that, right, was like the the end of the sugarcane harvest, right? You get to have this big party mm-hmm. to celebrate the harvest if you did well. Mm-hmm. And it just turned into this huge musical festival, right? And, and it's yeah, in- pretty much. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the basis for it is the the end of that harvest season. The thing that's so great about food is almost every culture has an end of harvest season celebration. The only thing that changes is what we're eating, not necessarily celebration itself. You know, that's how I feel like we can find places to connect all our cultures together. It's like, well, we celebrate end of harvest and we celebrate end of harvest, but we do it with pumpkins and we do it with you know, we do it with carnival. Like we do, we do it with crop over, and we do it with all these other things. So those are the things that like bring us together as humans and not really divide us at all. Absolutely, absolutely. And like some people think these days are quick to criticize that that it they say it over oversimplifies a lot of these issues. And it's like, well, I don't know. Like I'd like to celebrate our commonalities in a time where we're so divided, rather we than I think we're allowed. <laughs> Yeah, we're allowed to give us a little bit of fun. Okay, just a little bit. Just a smidge. <laughs> you got to have a little bit of fun. Oh, my God. I'm so glad, like I said, that you gave me an excuse to drink this pina colada in, on a Monday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> I'll take any freaking excuse I can get. Oh, my gosh. And it really does remind me so much. I mean, like, God, the rum there was so freaking good. Mount Gay Rum is from Barbados. Bomb yes. rum. And they have some rums there that you can't even get here in the States. Yeah that are like locally produced and locally distilled that you can't even, yeah, you can't even get here. There's one that's called Extra Old that's like absurdly tasty. And that was the one that I brought home and it was so good. We went to a distillery in Grenada actually and we're filming there and it was the middle of the summertime. And I've got to tell you, just walking through there, you just felt sticky. Your whole body was just covered in sugar. And it was like filming there for five hours. I was like, this is the most backbreaking work that anyone could possibly have ever done. And to have done that for years and years and years and years and to not get paid for that shit, I'd be fucking pissed too. I mean, it's, it, it really does speak to the, the resilience and the strength of the Caribbean people. And I should say the African people, Afro-Caribbean people. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Afro-Caribbean, you know, we're, we're our one now, you know, mm. I, I, uh, I have, both my parents have roots in Barbados, a little bit separate. My grandfather, grand, great-grandfather on my dad's side was born during the construction of the Panama Canal, or my grandfather was born, and his parents came, went from Barbados to Panama for the and lived in Panama while they're building the canal. And that was there was a ton of labor brought in from the Caribbean by the United States to build that canal. Horrible working conditions, never given Panamanian citizenship, but because my grandfather was born there, he was technically Panamanian and had US citizenship. Ooh, so. that dual citizenship is a sweet treat. <laughs> I wish yeah. I had some right now. Get me the fuck <laughs> out of here. Oh my God. Who yeah. do I got to marry? How do I, how do I sign up for exactly, that one? Exactly. Oh man. And then my mom was actually born in Barbados. She came to the States when she was, I want to say 14 or 15 years old. Okay. So she spent most of her like young childhood in Barbados living with aunts. Her father was here working and she was there 
living with aunts and cousins and she was kind of like passing around to all the family until he could afford to bring her over so yeah wild and so are some of these dishes that you're making at bridgetown roti are those dishes that you then grew up with or is it sort of a return to your heritage that you might not have explored uh it's a little bit of both things like i grew up eating like my mom would make curry chicken for holidays every holiday every new year's eve we'd have curry chicken and black eyed peas and my aunt vi on my dad's side made these salt codfish cakes which were like the family thing like if there was a party and aunt vi didn't bring codfish cakes there was issues <laughs> <laughs> watch out <laughs> Get smacked over the head with some bacalao. (laughs) (laughs) One of my earliest uh, food memories is of going downstairs to my mom's 40th birthday party when we lived in Brooklyn and getting like passed around by a bunch of drunk adults. I was like three years old, just not really knowing what's happening. And then ending up in my grandmother's arms when she gave me a codfish cake and like sent me to bed. And I'll never forget eating that first codfish cake and being like, oh my God, Mm. this is the greatest thing I've ever eaten in my life. And they really are. I mean, that's, I think, how the, the fish trade was really coming in and out of those ports, as well as the sugar cane and the, yeah. uh, the cotton, was fish. Fish, yeah. salted fish, bacalao was, like, really valuable back then. And so the, a lot of yeah. those, like, fish fries actually started from the, it being, like you said, a, a port city where they were coming in to trade fish, yeah? Yeah, and that salt, like, salted fish, salted pork, even salted crab, like, all those things find their ways into, you know, the cuisine now, like, things like cattle where it's like salt pork and salt crab all mixed with the greens and okra it comes from that like non-refrigerated tropical climate where it's like you have to keep that produce fresh Mm. you know as or preserved as much as you can and make it good for ships and travel so like all those little elements of it being a port town like finds its way into the cuisine really nicely when i was uh, back in barbados i was only there for uh, it was like a week-long adventure which and it really was an adventure but one of the things i did i had this great afternoon i went to the beach and i saw this like random rasta man like walking down the beach with a spear gun and a bunch of fish on a mm-hmm. little mm-hmm. Uh, wire and i was like hey man I'm like, what are you doing? That's really cool. Did you just go spearfishing? And he was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, do you want to, do you want to go? I was like, yeah, I want to go. So he ended up taking me out and trying to teach me how to spearfish. And holy no. shit, it was really, really challenging, but my God, what a great exercise in breath work. It's just so much about, yeah. and then quiet. And, but those fish move so fast. I don't know um, how they do it. I don't, I don't know, know how these guys do it. And he was under there. Like I was a swimmer growing up. So I'm like really, you know, feeling really confident walking in the water. <laughs> I could, I'm totally going to come back. Yeah, I'll get like a rack of fish. It'll be fine. I'm going to come back. Everyone's going to be so proud. Didn't get one dude, not a freaking one of them. But this guy was the sweetest. And then he showed me cousins fish shack afterwards. It was right on the beach oh, right nice. where we were. And I ended up having a fish cutter sandwich from that flying fish that Barbados okay. is so well known yeah. for. Fuck, it was good. Yeah. Shark bake, shark, like a, a shark fries, shark bake where they have the nice baked fry bread and they put the fried shark in there. It's uh, amazing. Oh my God. Can you just open like a really cool, like rum shack type fish sandwich? Roti, all the things like all the things. Well, I mean, I plan on keeping it casual. And for me, Caribbean food is casual. There's no need to gussy it up. It's just as delicious eaten in a roti as it would be plated nicely. So and I don't think it should be discounted in any type of way because we're keeping it casual. So I like to keep it casual. It'll be counter service you know, menu on the wall type of a spot. I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm definitely disillusioned with the restaurant model 
we have been working with for the past, I don't know, 100 years, 150 years, who knows how long, that has basically its roots in the slavery model of service. So I, I just don't feel like that is the way forward if we're going to pay people what we should be paying people. And if we're going to, you know, serve people food in a way that's safe, I just feel like the restaurant model is not, the current service model is not the one we should be following in the future. <laughs> I completely <laughs> agree. You know, Gregory Gorday up in Portland, he's awesome. Yes, he's yes, 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 Yeah, he mm-hmm. just like wrote in kind of like an op-ed and he was just saying like, tear it all down. Like just, you don't need to rebuild it, tear it down and like, let's rebuild it because you're absolutely right. Like we talked a little bit about, you know, how all of these quote unquote great countries were built off of slave labor or incredibly cheap labor. Like you're disillusioned if you think that also like the things that we enjoy now, like I'm looking at an Apple computer, I've got an iPhone thinking that China is not built off of slave slash cheap labor in their, you know, in the Uyghur camps and everything. It still exists today. And it exists not just even over there, but here, like, like you're describing in the restaurant industry, it's not fair and it's not right. How do you think a restaurant model like that, where you're describing where it's more counter service, it's maybe a smaller staff, how would the equity play out in a situation like that? Or how do you envision it playing out? Well, I envision it to be a place in which everyone knows every, every job so that, you know, we all come, all our employees come in kind of at one salary and we all, we train everyone across the board. So you're going to work a dishwasher shift. You're going to work a line shift. You're going to work a cashier shift. And if you excel and you show you're doing well, then, you know, you can get a raise based on that merit wherever you excel. So if you're a dishwasher who's kicking butt and you work the line and you kick butt, then you get a raise. And it doesn't matter that you're the dishwasher or the line cook or the cashier or the busser. It matters how well you do. It matters how much you, agency you take on with, with the place. So that's the vision that I see working because then you're not, you know, I it used to drive me crazy that these dishwashers who worked in these restaurants for four or five years couldn't get past a certain monetary amount just because they were a dishwasher position. It's like, well, they've worked for you for four years and they make less than the guy who just got hired. That doesn't make any sense. That makes zero sense. Mm-hmm. The dishwasher's wing for four years should be making more than the line cook that you just hired. You just should mm-hmm. because they've been loyal to you, because they have agency, because they care, because they show up. Their job is just as valuable to the success of the restaurant as that line cooks is. Even yeah. more so, maybe, because it, if they don't show up, you know, you're going to be the, you're the chef who's going to be in the dish pit or you're going to be the sous chef in the dish pit doing the dishes in the first place. So, and what are you worth? You know, mm-hmm. what are you worth? And that, I just think the whole model of this tiered salary positions based on what you do versus what you contribute, it just has to go. It's about what you contribute. It's not about the position. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's something that plagues the restaurant industry and just in general, like our general means of employment. It's like how that person could have an unending wealth of skills that you haven't even begun to tap into because you never gave them a chance. You never even know. I mean, like, I'm sure some of the chefs that you've worked with are kicking themselves in the ass, looking at how well you're doing, being like, why the fuck didn't I let that girl throw some specials on the menu? Or why didn't I promote her to executive chef? Like, it's going to be frustrating <laughs> I think, for them to see, to see thrive. I think, well, I, I have to say, I think, I think that all the chefs that I've worked for have 
done a good job of, of, of recognizing my skill set and giving me opportunities um, to shine. Um, I never felt like I wasn't given opportunities to shine. Mm-hmm. But what bothered me was that other people weren't getting opportunities to shine just because of their positions, just because they're a prep cook and not a line cook, just because they're a dishwasher, just because they're a busser. You know, I know bussers and runners who've been bussers and runners for 10, 12 years and never given an opportunity to be a server ever. And the servers are making how much more money than they're making. Why? Because you couldn't find a way to teach them how to be a server, to take orders because they're Latino, they can't take orders. Come on, that's a that's a good a culture of hospitality, Latin America. Come on, that's like literally you're I mean, you're missing an opportunity. Even, yeah, even if it's like a language barrier, you can't. They know enough to run the food and tell the people exactly what it is when they drop it. Do you tell me they couldn't explain the menu to those same people? Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. trade took the time to train them to do it, but you don't want to do that because it takes a little more effort. No. That yeah, there therein okay. lies the I'm problem. Done we're done. We're done. We're smashing it. We're throwing it out the window with the rest. Thank you very much. <laughs> like I'm yeah, not doing it anymore. No, I think I, it's such a valid point, and I I think that you know in the place that you described, I think it really can work as such. You know, and we are in a position where it's like this whole idea of reimagining, restructuring. Like we're in a good position to do that. It's now is the time. If there ever was a time, absolutely. Absolutely. Everything, you know, it's everything closes. And I feel for a lot of, you know, my friends who are going through really hard times with their restaurants and trying to survive and being like, I mean, if we're, you know, 5,000 in the hole by the year, end of the year, that's like best case scenario. You know, it's tough to see people struggle. I was so sad when here's looking at you closed recently because I love that place. It was really good. No, But they had really expensive ingredients and they, I just don't think you can, it's hard to maintain when you have really expensive ingredients and you know you require a lot of volume it's it's tough it's tough out here so yeah i don't think it's it's going to be a while before people are ready to drop you know 250 bucks peep per person yeah exactly any if anything i'm like yeah 50 bucks five <laughs> bucks man i'm like the thing i'm doing now is like i mean i cook all the time i'm not dining out and i feel like kind of you know i have to say i'm also unemployed i work in this space of tourism tourism boards were a huge client restaurants were yep. my other clients and in production so i'm like completely fucked so unemployed so broke more broke than i've ever been even like in college and i feel guilty that i can't necessarily be out spending at the restaurants that i love but you're period. not alone in that you know you're not alone in you know you want to help people survive but you have to survive so you know, yeah. where's the in between, you know, where's the, where's the place where, you know, we can all exist and still go out and enjoy and not have to cook for ourselves all the time. Cause it's boring. Oh my God. Um, it's boring. It's boring. I'm so boring. And I like love to cook and I love my little garden. I love the whole thing. I'm a like, chef, but I don't want to cook for myself all the time. Like I can't even <laughs> imagine what other people who aren't chefs, like <laughs> totally. I can throw it, I can, I can look at my pantry and like throw something together. And she goes like, this is, my wife is like, this is delicious. And I was like, ah, oh, I just made, I just made this up. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I just didn't want to go to the grocery store. And I'm like, gosh, what are people without my skill set doing right now? They must I be. I know. The struggle. struggle is real. The struggle real, is real. real. You know, I think that's why when I, you know, for, first started like selling the patties out of my house, I got such a response because everyone was like, oh my God, food, I don't have to cook it in my house. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, it's eight bucks. Okay, cook great. You can get yes. two of those. 
lunch is done, 16 bucks, great. We did it. Totally. And there's like, there's a real model there for also like direct consumer or, you know, online sales. That's, you know, I think moving forward for a while, that's going to be something that's very profitable and something that people can really access. And it's comfort food ultimately, you know. It is. It is comfort food. It's just the comfort food that I grew up eating. And now I'm like, hey guys, it's not, there's not just Italian and there's not just lasagna. There's there's this other stuff here too, and it's just as comforting, if not more so. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd I have to say so. I mean, it, and it's like sort of adjacent, right? Like if you haven't had a patty, it's kind of like an empanada, but like a way more flavorful empanada. Yeah, it is. I mean, every culture's got some wrapped in dough. This is just our version. Mm-hmm. So I, love, I think I love that every culture has something wrapped in dough. You got empanadas, you got patties, you got dumplings, you got pierogies, you got mm-hmm. the list goes on and on. Bow buns, you got all the, you know, it goes on and on and on. It's like food that you can eat in your hand while you're walking around. Exactly. I mean, I miss the hands though. That's one thing that I was thinking about Ethiopian food the other day or, or dim sum. And I'm like, oh my God, I just miss like all the hands in the plates and the pans and all that. There's something about eating with your hands that's just so, it just feels very connected, very primal, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it feels good. It feels really good. It does. It does. Um, Is your wife in the industry as well or... No, my wife is uh, actually um, a middle school educator. Oh my goodness gracious. LUSD or... LAUSD. She is an LAUSD. Oh my gosh. Well, you're going to have her by your side for a little bit longer because apparently announced today we're not going back to school in the fall. Yeah, I saw that. Did you see that? I saw that today. I can't believe it. I'm so glad though, honestly. I was not, I did not feel comfortable with her going back to school in any sort of capacity. Kids are great. Kids their kids, yeah, snotty, not washing their hands, icky, touching each other. Yeah, it's it's not good. They're alone with their parents. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents are both um, LAUSD retirees, so my, my hat goes off. I know that it's not an easy job and wildly underpaid, always on the chopping block. Another system that needs to fall in my bait and be rebuilt, Let's I should give say. Give the schools the money. I just don't, I just like, the Bush years, I feel like just ruined education so much and we are still recovering from the bushier cuts of education. Yeah. So profound and so deep, you know, across the country, but even in California, you know, the Schwarzenegger years of education cuts. I know. I remember being like, if this guy gets elected, I'm leaving the country. And now again, I'm like really just regretting my lack of action on that one because things just evolved in a really sinister way, didn't they? No, I mean, if, I mean, if Trump, we're gone. It, it, we're gone. We're out. We're yeah. Out. I don't we care can't. what I have going on. I'm out of here. I can't do it. I can't we're, do it. We're building a floaty raft <laughs> and we're going to travel somewhere back to Panama. I don't know what we're doing, but it's- I don't know. I just, I'm just too black and female and gay to live four more years of Trump. I just, oh, I, I get it. I get it. I really get it. And it's just like, I, ugh, holy I feel, cow. I feel like my life's in danger. Yeah. <laughs> like a, under constant freaking threat. It's just so wild. And it's, I mean, especially now, like we just got through pride month and everything and it's just, oh, yeah. caramba here. Here we are. Holy mackerel. Vote. Yeah, we got to vote. We got to vote. Exactly. And yet the census, I mean, I'll, yeah, that is all so important, guys. Hey, just do not forget to register, please. We're coming up on a very important election and all the black squares don't mean a damn thing unless you get yourself to the polling place, please. 
please. But I do think it's so good what you're doing, really. Like, I mean, you're, you are a really strong Black queer woman. And to see someone like yourself, you know, you're a business owner, you're now hustling and doing your thing and building your business, working towards getting a brick and mortar. I think it's going to set a really great example for young kids out there that may not have seen someone like them in a, in a position like you're in right now. Yeah. I mean, I hope for me, I just want my business to be in the black. And if that, if the result of that means that I can can inspire some other people, then that's wonderful. But for me, it's just about really just sharing the food that I grew up with, with as many people as I can. I really, really enjoy it. I really enjoy people enjoying it. That's like my favorite thing. It's like, oh, you enjoyed my food. And I get such a high off of that, of that wonderful feeling of just providing people with some love through the food. It's so, it's so important and so necessary in, in this day and age. Do you ever feel pressure in that way to kind of like speak for a community, you know, like where it's like, you just, you sound like, look, dude, I just want to make some really delicious food and share a little bit of my culture. Like, why does it have to be like black, queer, yada, yada? I try, I do shy away from, you know, being a representative. I'm just me. And even the black female queer experience is not a monolith, even though it's like we're bringing it all the way down. Even that experience is not a monolith, you know, so I I try not to get too caught up in representation. I think that just by being myself, I do represent enough. And that's I tell my own story. And I just want to get to a place where all we have to do is tell our own story without all the caveats that go along with it. So. That's all that I can do. I can't I can't speak for people that I don't know because I don't know all the black queer women. <laughs> I just don't know them. I know some. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. one, you know, yeah. I'm married to one. Yeah, but yeah. Like, <laughs> I know a couple just others. Cool. I got some friends, I've met some people, but I just, I can't speak to the whole experience and everyone's mm-hmm. is different. And so if I just tell my story, then that's just one more story that you'll hear from a person you haven't heard from before. And that's really all that matters. That's exactly, exactly it. And I do hope we get to a point where we can just be ourselves and exist and be proud of who we are. And it's not a matter of like labeling or fitting into some checkbox, you know, I hope that that is something that we see within our lifetime. And I, I do, I have hope that that can be a reality. The youth have it. The youth, they have it figured out. The young, the young people, they know what's up. They're the ones who were out protesting, you know, in June. They're the ones who are who have who really grew up with the first president they could even comprehend of was Obama. So they're just confused as to why, how do we end up here? Like, how do we get from Obama to here? And they like quite, they're like, nah, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're all confused. Let's be honest. Yeah, we're all there. confused. We're confused too, kids. We, we don't know how we ended up here either. But I have faith. I have faith in the youth. You know, I find it strange that old people always talk about, oh, the kids today, kids today, and I'm like, no, kids today. They kids today are all right. They're gonna mm-hmm. figure it out. They're totally. gonna solve it. I'm like, give it, give them the power because yes, give them have- the power. Give them the K-pop stars <laughs> on TikTok to ruin the rally. I was like, yes, that's fucking brilliant. That's what I say. Give them the power because they have the new ideas. They're going to think of things we haven't even dreamt of. I believe in young people. Young people yeah. are 
they got it together. I think about the, you know, the youth these days too, or even just the the coming generation. I'm like, God, I wonder if there'll ever be a day when kids don't have to come out anymore. You know, where it's like, it just is like, you just, you're on this like spectrum of whatever it is and you love who you love. And it's, there's not even like that awkward conversation or or potentially awkward conversation with your family or friends. Like, Mm -hmm. wouldn't that be I don't know. I see I, it. I see it. I definitely I, do see it. I don't know. You know, I think I'll be old when it happens. I'll be like the grandma and my grandkids will be like, grandma, les- nobody says lesbian anymore. And I'll be like, oh, I'm just an old person. What are you going to do with me? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that will be the day. What was it like for you? I know I'm in the Caribbean American and Caribbean community in general, especially just still in the Caribbean. Like it is not accepted. There's still so many anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ laws. What was it like for you coming out, growing up? It was not easy, but not terrible. My older brother is also gay. So he kind of paved the gay road a little bit. He came out when he was uh, 15. So I remember when he came out, I think I was like... 10 or 11 and I was like oh we can that's an option we can do that <laughs> I'm allowed to say that okay. <laughs> thank god <laughs> paved a but, little rainbow brick road for yeah, you yeah you know my parents they were more religious then than they are now and it was hard for my parents at the time you know it was like 1997 and just we weren't we weren't where we are now for sure in the conversation Mm. so they just hadn't conceived of it really being a possibility for their kids and it it took a lot of growth and personal um introspection for them to get to this like harmonious place with my brother first my parents are pretty open people in general they're religious, but they never were conservative. So it allowed, there was room, there was room for growth and room for, okay, we have gay kids. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's gonna we, be can, okay. we can live in this space. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I definitely came out later in life because I didn't want to be the second gay kid. Um, that's like a, you know, you don't want to be, you know, all their hopes and dreams were on me for, you know, living a quote unquote normal, you know, life. So it took me a little bit longer to come out to them, but they always came from a place of love. So even though it was hard for them and I knew it was hard for them, I always knew that they loved me anyway. I never questioned the fact that they loved me. Um, and I'm super grateful for that because that's not anyone's experience, you know. And now, you know, me and my brother are both married. They love our, you know, they love their, you know, daughter and son-in-law. They're super happy with the way things turned out and super proud of us too. So I think, I think them being like, New Yorkers in my dad's like born in New York and my, you know, coming up in New York in the sixties and seventies and eighties helped tremendously amount about their ability to accept who we were um, (laughs) as kids. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I frankly didn't grow up in the Caribbean because it's so much harder there. It's really, it's a shame that the Caribbean is pretty religious in general, and that informs a lot of their social norms and their social acceptances. So 
It's hard, in, and that extends to the Black community at large, unfortunately. I mean, it's better here in the States, but in places, I mean, places in Africa and places, you know, where religion has a hard hold on the social structure of things, we're just not involved in the conversation at all. We don't even exist. So it's tough. I mean, I, I would love to be a bridge to the actual Caribbean and you know, maybe educate some people about what it is to be a queer person and how it can exist in their society without being this source of tension and conflict. So we got some time. We got some years on that. That's going to take a dismantling of the religious hold on on social structures. Absolutely. It starts there and then it goes goes from there. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, I can relate. My family is Catholic. And so it was something that I, it was really hard for me. I'm bi. So, you know, coming out, I just came out to my parents a couple of years ago, actually. And I feel like I'm constantly having out, like coming out parties to my friends because I've been dating men. My past two like serious relationships have been guys. And so people just kind of like assume. And then when I'm in conversation, they're like, oh my God, what? You? And I'm like, yeah. Like, I just kind of assume people know, like, I don't know why. I don't know. Anyway, but my parents, when I told them, my mom was super chill and she was like, you know what, honey? Like, we love you no matter what. And I knew my mom would be like that. She's like super cool. She's kind of like of that same generation of your parents. (laughs) My mom too. We She was like, I love it okay. Like, honey, oh my God, I'm so glad you told us. And my dad was like, I'm going to need some more wine. He's like, Joyce, pass the wine. (laughs) And he does not like drink, drink. And he was just like, (laughs) you know, ultimately like they do, you know, they do love me and accept me. And I'm so thankful that, you know, it wasn't this like huge riff in our family that it very well could have been. And it is for a lot of people. So many young, you know, so many kids and religion, like you said, is a big, huge, it's a big source of it, which is so hilarious because the church in itself I, the the nexus of it, I love, you know, the philanthropy and like the general teachings of Jesus are wonderful things, but like, oh God, what it's devolved to be, my word, that's got to go too. Yeah. I mean, I just think religion is in of itself a hold of our ancient tribal natures. And, you know, I think so many of our social struggles come from our inability to let go of our tribes and like keep and like increase the amount of people we envelope into our tribes. And, you know, until we do that and until we recognize religion's role in keeping us apart, then we're never going to be able to get over that hump of breaking those tribal walls down and being like, no, 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 we're in a human tribe. Mm. Let's act like we're in a human tribe instead of you're a Christian and you're a Muslim and you're this and you're that and you're black and you're white and all, I mean, all of it is wrapped up in the tribalism of religion. So Mm. you got to break those tribes down. Tribalism is the source of our problems. I really do hope that we get to the point where we can, you know, break down all of these barriers that we talked about because they're, they're big ones, but it's not insurmountable. And, um, you know, we're in that time where it's like, it's a, it's a, for the first time in a long time, it feels like a real possibility. Yeah. And the globalization that we have experienced over the past 20 years, like has forced, you know, us, everyone to kind of knock heads. It's like we can't exist in the world without interacting and cooperating with people of different cultures and people who think differently and people who act differently. And so we have to get over that hump because we're not going to, there's not, we're not going to go back. 
we're not going to go back to a place where you're isolated and you're in your insular community and you only see people that look like you and are around people that think like you. That, that just doesn't exist anymore. The internet has broken down that reality mm-hmm. completely. So like now as we're still figuring out like what all this information technology means to us and how it affects our social structures, it's going to be a rough road <laughs> for a long time yeah but an exciting one nonetheless it's like i think you know, I'm here. Yeah. So say, i can't wait to be the grandma who like is an old lesbian that nobody says lesbian anymore like yes oh man well look it's been so awesome chatting with you you're just a ray of light and i cannot wait to finally try these patties and rotis um and also of course see your brick and mortar when that opens up tell everybody where they can follow you uh, they can follow me on Instagram at Bridgetown Ro- underscore Roti. I also have a website, BridgetownRoti.com, where hopefully online ordering will be set up by this week, if not next week. And I do my pop-ups on the weekends, tend to be Friday, Saturday, Sunday is when you can order and pick up your rotis and patties. Love that. Perfect for all the social distance picnics to you guys, because the both of them are really great handheld individual items. So with the roti, what kind of flavors are you doing for the filling? For the rotis, I'll be doing my mom's chicken curry recipe. I do a chana, which is chickpeas, chana and uh, sweet potato and fried cauliflower. Um, I also do in when the, when the season is red, I'll do a, a goat roti, red pepper goat roti as well. Um, and then the patties, I do an oxtail patty. I do a shrimp and potato patty. And then I change up the vegan one that I do. I, I do have vegan options for both the patties and the rotis as well. So I always, always got to keep my vegans eating good. Love that. That's so important in LA for sure. Oh, it sounds so good. Oh man, I'm, that, that sounds so good. I'm so excited. The exterior of the patties, is it is there turmeric in it? What makes it that beautiful yellow color? There's turmeric in the dough. There's curry powder, house-made curry powder that I make. So that's what gives it its really nice, vibrant yellow color and flavor. Oh, they're so beautiful. They look so tasty. Very in-store-worthy food, you guys. And the rotis, I actually use locally milled flour from Gris and Toll in Pasadena. So they're super fresh. So if you're feeling like a little gluten savvy, it is locally milled flour. And I know some people are cool with that. Some people aren't. Totally. Oh my, Gristin Toll makes the best flour. It's awesome. Isaac, shout out to Isaac. Isaac's my boy. Well, that's really great. I cannot wait to do a pickup myself. And again, thank you so much for taking the time because I know you're about to get rolling. Yeah, this was fun. This was fun. I enjoyed it. (laughs) I love it. Your delight. Oh, likewise. Likewise. Well, we will hopefully see you this weekend for a pickup. And thank you again for all that you do and bringing your light to the show. 